Well, today we are continuing in our sermon series on the gospel of Jesus according to Mark. We are now today on part seven, entitled The Escape of Prayer. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that it is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. We thank you that by your spirit it is for us today and that you can speak to our hearts, each one, wherever we come from. Whatever we need to hear from you today, we pray that you would speak it to our hearts, give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, and then feet to obey whatever you would have from us today. I pray that you would speak through me, your servant, the words would be yours, in Jesus' name, amen. There's a story I've shared once before of a young man who went to a local drugstore to buy three boxes of chocolates. He went in and he bought one small box, one medium box, and one large box, which he piled up on the counter. When the pharmacist behind the counter asked the young man what these three boxes of chocolates were for, he replied, Well, I'm going over to my new girlfriend's house for supper tonight, and I'm going to be meeting her parents for the first time, and then after that we're going out for the evening. So when we go out, if she only lets me hold her hand, well, then I'll give her the small box of chocolates. If she lets me kiss her on the cheek, then I'll give her the medium box of chocolates. But if she lets me smooch her right on the lips, well, then I'll give her the large box of chocolates. Well, at this, the pharmacist nodded knowingly, and the young man then made his purchase and left. Well, later that evening, as he sat down for dinner with his girlfriend's family, He surprisingly asked if he could say the prayer before the meal. And so the somewhat strange request was granted, and he began to pray and pray and pray. It was an intense and heartfelt prayer, very eloquent and filled with all sorts of flowery phrases. In fact, it almost lasted five minutes before he finally said, Amen. Well, at this, his new girlfriend looked at him quite strangely and said to him, You never told me you were such a religious person. To which he replied, And you never told me that your dad is the local pharmacist. (laughs) Well, there's nothing like a personal crisis to drive us to prayer, is there? Isn't it strange how in life we can sometimes get into such a rut with praying that maybe we say rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, or some, you know, equivalent of it before a meal. But that's about it. Our prayer life can become anemic, stagnant. And yet, then all of a sudden, something comes along that really has got us worried. Anxiety or something just unforeseen, and suddenly we're praying fervently, just like this young guy. A personal crisis. Even in today's quite secular culture in which we live, We even see this nod to prayer during times of crisis. You'll you'll hear even news anchors and politicians say this phrase, our thoughts and prayers are with you when something terrible happens. But is prayer as God intends it, limited to only times of personal crisis? Or is there more to this avenue of prayer than that? Is there something richer and fuller that God would like us to draw into? Well, if we look closely at the life of Jesus, as recorded for us in the Gospels, we will quickly notice that one of the most prominent and consistent parts of Jesus' life was his prayer life. 
we might refer to it today as his devotional life. Now, we'll say often for shorthand that I'm doing my devotions or have you done your devotions? And we use this as shorthand for saying, have you spent that quality time aside with the Lord to spend a little bit of time in his word, maybe read a chapter or a few verses, read a devotional book, you know, a thought on the verses you've read, and spend a little bit of time in prayer. And so we use some derivative, some combination of those things to say that that's my devotional life. However, I would argue that that little combination, as important as it is, falls a little bit short of the full meaning of the term devotion. Now, according to the dictionary, the word devotion means an earnest attachment to a cause or person, profound dedication. Profound dedication. I'd like to latch on to that phrase a little bit. Would you describe your devotional life as being one of profound dedication? Or is it kind of just hit or miss when I get around to it? For you see, devotion is not so much a description of something that I do on occasion, but rather devotion is supposed to be a part of who we are. For whatever or whoever we are truly devoted to is where we will give the majority of our time, our energy, and our thoughts. So the question that we should ask is, to what or to whom am I profoundly dedicated? To what or to whom am I profoundly dedicated? This is not only asking, you know, that, that old question of what am I willing to die for? And to that we'd often say, well, my family, my, my children, my wife, my parents, I die for them. I'm profoundly dedicated to them. But I believe it goes beyond that to asking, what am I truly willing to live for? And who am I truly willing to live for? Because you see, saying I'm willing to die for something is a hypothetical because, well, if you're going to do it, it's only going to happen one time, right? You can only die for something one time. But living for something or someone, that happens all the time, and it must happen every single day. Dying for something's a one-time event. Living for something is a daily, lifelong event. So who are you willing to live for? And this is what we're getting at with this devotional life, is that God, of course, seeks our hearts to be fully devoted to him, that not only are we willing to die for him, but that we are truly willing to live for him every single day, not just once in a while, but profoundly dedicated to living for him. Now, Jesus modeled for us exactly what this life of profound dedication to God looked like. So we don't have to wonder at what we're talking about this morning. He clearly demonstrated it throughout his life. And we see in today's text that the foundation of this devoted, profoundly dedicated life to his father was built upon prayer. Now, a thorough investigation of the Gospels reveals that there are 17 specific occasions recorded that we're told that Jesus prayed. So 17 times through the Gospels, um, standalone times where Jesus prayed. And we're not going to go through all 17, but we're going to highlight the one from today's text in Mark chapter 1 and verse 35 to 39. Please turn there with me in your Bibles. Mark 1, 35 to 39. Now, we've been going through these sections the past several weeks. 
A couple of weeks back, we looked at this first powerful coming out party, if you will, in the fishing town of Capernaum. For there he's made this grand entrance by making uh, an appearance in the synagogue on a Sabbath morning. And he's in there and he's preaching and teaching powerfully. And the people are already in awe of him because he speaks as one who has authority. Not like the rabbis who were just quoting other men. He had his own authority with which he spoke. But then a demon-possessed man stands up and says, I know who you are, son of God. Have you come to destroy us? And Jesus demonstrated that his authority was not just appearances. It was straight from God because he silenced the demon. He cast it out, rebuked it, and it left. And all the people were in awe of him. Well, then right after that service is over, he goes back to Simon Peter's house where he then heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law of a severe fever. Word of all these things is now getting out into the town and into the neighborhood and into the countryside. And so that evening, as soon as the sun goes down, the people are bringing everyone to Jesus. It says the whole city packed in around the house. And so late into the night, the great physician is at work. It says he's healing people of all sorts of sicknesses. He's casting out more demons, silencing them because they know who he is. And on and on it went. The great physician, a one-stop shop for everything. It didn't matter what it was. If you had a toe ache or a severe illness that you were at death's door, it didn't matter. He could and did heal it. And we would think that at this point, Jesus would just keep the good times rolling, right? Just let the people keep coming and the word would get out. And before long, he'd have half the people believing in him. But then in Mark chapter 1 and verse 35, the beginning of our text for today, we're told this. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Now, at first glance, it seems an awful lot like Jesus left the crowds and perhaps more sick people behind and snuck away to be by himself leaving them behind. It sounds an awful lot like that, doesn't it? Well, I think the reason it sounds an awful lot like that is because, well, that's exactly what happened, and that's exactly what Jesus did. Mark 1 verse 36 continues to prove this point because it continues. Simon and his companions went to look for him. Now, this tells us that clearly Jesus hadn't told anyone that he was sneaking away or where he was going because suddenly word got around that where's Jesus? Where did he go? Did you see him leave? Did you see him? I don't know. Which way did he go? And so they scatter out with a search party, urgently looking for him. Now, this wasn't supposed to be a game of hide-and-seek, but that's more or less how it turned out, as the disciples are now searching for him. Where's a likely place that he might have gone so early in the morning? Where exactly did Jesus go for this private prayer time? Well, on this point, the text is silent. It simply says it was a solitary place. It's the idea being that this is a little bit remote, a little bit perhaps hidden where he could be alone. Well, in this next slide, we're going to see a picture that the early church tradition held that Jesus went to pray in this small cave, which is very near Capernaum, overlooking the Sea of Galilee. Now, this cave has been called the Eremos Grotto. The Eremos Grotto. 
Now, there's nothing overly impressive looking about this little cave, and it's probably the reason why it's rarely visited, even today, by those who go to visit the Holy Land. 99% of people who will pass through Capernaum never go and visit this cave, and Leanne and I are included in that number because while we were in nearby Capernaum, just a couple hundred yards away from this cave, we didn't know about the cave, our tour guide didn't tell us about it, and so we never went and spent any time there. However, back in the earliest centuries of Christianity, apparently this Eremos Grotto was one of the most frequently visited holy sites by Christian pilgrims. And the reason was this tiny little cave was preserved in the memory of Jesus' followers as that deserted place, that solitary place, that he didn't just go this one time, but they believed that while he lived in Galilee, this was the very place that it said when he would go to a solitary place to, pr- to pray, this was the repeated place that he went, his favorite prayer nook, if you will. This was where he would escape from that crush of the omnipresent crowds who were always seeking him out for more healings, for more miracles, and for more teaching. Now, the reason it's called the Eremos Cave is that that word Eremos literally means lonely or deserted place. But while there's nothing particularly impressive looking about the cave looking towards it, in this next slide, you'll see the view looking outward from the cave. Now we can see perhaps why Jesus went here often to be alone, to pray. Like, what a view, right? This is what it looks like the other way, looking out towards the Sea of Galilee, looking straight south, and it's this beautiful vista opened up where it's believed that Jesus would spend time in here early in the morning or whenever he needed to escape from the crowds. And he came here to pray and commune with his Father. But now it seems that if, in fact, this was where Jesus escaped that early morning, it appears that Simon Peter, being a local to that region, he perhaps also knew about this little cave. And so it doesn't take them long to find Jesus. And verse 37 tells us, And when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. So in other words, the disciples were, in effect, rebuking Jesus. Did you catch that? Everyone's looking for you. And, and hidden sort of in that phrase is saying, how dare you go hide away while everyone is looking for you? The crowds have come to see you. The sick have come to be healed by you. Everyone is looking for you. What are you doing out here in this cave? They couldn't understand. Because from the disciples' perspective, business was booming. Jesus was now popular and known in the whole region. Everyone's flocking. Isn't that what he wanted? What was he doing sneaking away and hiding in this cave? They didn't understand. But now we need to listen carefully to Jesus' answer to his confused disciples who don't get it. Why does he need to go away like this? And he says to them in verse 38, Let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also, for that is why I have come. And just like that, with no further explanation, Jesus just up and leaves Capernaum. And he leaves behind a totally successful ministry. It's booming. The people are flocking. They're practically breaking down the door to reach him and to hear his teaching and to feel his touch. So it begs the question, why? 
Why would Jesus just up and leave so abruptly? And the answer has to be because he had spent time with his father. Jesus had spent time with his father in prayer. And so here we see our first key from this text this morning is this. Jesus prayed before all of his major decisions and events of his life and ministry. Jesus prayed before all of his major decisions. Not after, before. And this is something that we must learn to do as well. You see, all of us have to relative, I think most of us would say our lives are busy or at least full, right? Because there's a never-ending amount of things that we can fill our lives with from, from morning till our head hits the pillow at night. And, and by nature, we like to be busy. We like to be active. We like to be doing and going. But when we get so busy in life, even in the work of the ministry, we can become busy. If it gets to the point where we're so busy that we are forgetting to spend time alone with God, then we have missed the point. And when that happens, we become disconnected from our Lord. And we will soon become ineffective in our ministry for the Lord and even in our lives in general. Because, you see, for Jesus, going to be alone with his Father was not an optional activity. It was vital. There was no ministry apart from his connection with his Father. There was, there was no outer working apart from the inner working of that connection to his Heavenly Father through prayer. And so Jesus would not allow himself to become disconnected from his father. He carved out time. It was non-negotiable. And he would go to that, to that silent and solo place to be alone with him. For as Jesus said elsewhere to his disciples, he said to them, abide in me and I in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, Jesus knew that his, his full authority and connection came from his Father, and, and apart from his Father, he could do nothing. He had no authority, but in his Father, he could do everything. Nothing was impossible, and he had all authority. So he would not allow anything to sever that connection, and so it must be for us. Apart from Jesus, we have no power. We have no authority. We have no influence. We have nothing. But he says, in me, abide in me, and I in you. Well, that's when things are going to happen. But apart from me, you can do nothing. So you see, our service to God is the direct result of time spent with God in prayer. You see, Jesus had that strategy session that early morning with his father. And so when he came out of prayer that morning when the disciples said, everyone's looking for you, he already had his answer. The orders for the day had already been set, and he knew that it was time to move on. Yes, there was more he could have done in Capernaum, more people to heal, but there was yet more ground to be covered elsewhere. His prayer time had refocused his purpose and his goal, and so he says to his disciples with no hesitation, with absolute certainty, for this is why I have come. When Jesus was leaving town that day to go elsewhere, it wasn't, I hope I'm making the right decision. It wasn't, well, I think this is the way I'm supposed to go. He says, for this I have come. This is why I have come. And you see, that's a major reason why you and I need prayer as well. 
You and I need to talk over our plans with God, to ask for his guidance and to seek his will. Because our plans, apart from connecting to the Father, may be the wrong plans. Because we need him to redirect us as he wills, not as we think is best. It's what he thinks that matters. So no matter how busy you are, how well things may seem to be going in your life, I urge you, take that time to abide, connect, and listen. And we must also come to him with an open mind to truly hear him and not just try to go to him to rubber stamp our plans. I don't know how often in my life I've done that where it's like, I know I need to pray, so I bring my plans to God and I say, Lord, these are good plans, right? Yeah, okay, away we go. But I haven't spent the time necessary to really listen and say, Lord, are these good plans? Because they're only good if they're from you. If they're just from me and you have different plans, these, these plans are rubbish. They're garbage. We need to take time to abide, to say, Lord, are these plans from you? And if they're not, change them, alter them. Let them be only your plans. Because those are the only ones that are going to have that eternal impact that we're looking for. Come to him with an open mind, truly hear him, and then listen to his direction. Now, did you know that when we pray, God gets into our minds and can actually alter our thinking? Well, to say God gets into our minds is another way of saying because the Holy Spirit indwells us. He is within us. We are already the temple of the Holy Spirit if we are born again. And so from within, he is the one who works even within the very thoughts within our minds as we seek him. In fact, a recent medical research, uh, a whole project was conducted on this very topic. NBC News ran the following story. Dr. Andrew Newberg of, Tom of Thomas Jefferson Hospital has been studying the effect of prayer on the human brain for more than 20 years, injecting radioactive dye into subjects and watching how the activity in the brain changes when they pray. He says, quote, You can see it's all red here when the person is just at rest, said Newberg, pointing at a computer screen showing brain activity. But you see, it turns into these yellow colors when she's actually doing the act of prayer. And these changes, says Newberg, are signs of the power of prayer to heal. Quote, We see not only changes in the activity levels, but in different neurotransmitters. The chemicals in our brain alter when we pray. He said it was particularly fun to watch what happened inside the brains of a group of Franciscan nuns when they joined together in meditative prayer. The area of the brain associated with the sense of self began to shut down, according to Newberg. He said, you become connected to God. Your self sort of goes away. And Romans 12 verse 2 says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind. And isn't it interesting that this, this scientist who's doing this research can actually, in a sense, see the brain being renewed when people are in prayer. The activity, the, the brain waves, everything changes when we come into a posture of prayer. Paul said it way back 2,000 years ago. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then he goes on to say, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So Paul is linking these things together. Learning what direction God wants us to go is directly linked 
to this posture of prayer, being transformed by the renewing of our minds as we sit before the Lord, and he will direct us to understand and to know what his good, pleasing, and perfect will is. Of this, Richard Foster once wrote, To pray is to change. Prayer is the central avenue God uses to transform us. If we are unwilling to change, we will abandon prayer as a noticeable characteristic of our lives. The closer we come to the heartbeat of God, the more we see our need and the more we desire to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so we see that prayer is the central avenue that brings us into direct communion and contact with God by his Spirit. And through this avenue, he then reaches in and he transforms our minds. He renews them. And he lifts us above our selfish desires because we're now thinking less about ourselves and what we want and more about God and what he wants. And he then guides our very thoughts and desires and he he shapes them to come into alignment with his will. To pray is to change. See, so often we come into prayer with the wrong idea. We think we're going to pray to change God's mind. Because we think that, well, I just need to bend God to my way of seeing things. Right? We have an idea of how things should go, so we think, God, listen up. This is how I want you to act. This is how I want you to move in this situation. You need to change. But I tell you, 100% of the time, it's the opposite. It's not God who needs to change. We don't need to give him our great ideas. No, it's the other way around. We need to change. We need to come into alignment with God's way of seeing things, his thinking, and his plans. It's not God who needs to change his mind. It's us. Our minds need to be changed, renewed. And this comes principally through the avenue of prayer. Now, the second thing we notice from Jesus' example is that his prayer life was consistent. They weren't these once-in-a-while prayers like we saw in the outset, times of crisis. Of course, we do see him praying in times of crisis, as we should, but it wasn't only in times of crisis. They were regular and they were often. Luke chapter 5, 15 and 16 tells us, The news about Jesus spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Now listen to this phrase. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Now, whether it was in this specific cave, we of course can't be dogmatically certain. There's a good chance it was this exact view that he often escaped to to pray. But Luke is making the point here that this wasn't just a one-time event. Luke says Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Often means often, right? This isn't just once or twice. This is a regular feature in his life. As Dr. Ed Neufeld points out, that line, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed, could occur anywhere in the Gospels. But it doesn't occur just anywhere. This line gains extra weight by where Luke puts it. Jesus' withdrawal for prayer occurs in a specific context. Crowds coming. The crowds were always coming, and he was often withdrawing from them. It was not a freak occurrence, not an escape Jesus used when it was all just too much. Rather, he did this often, regularly. It was a recognizable trait of his ministry, a known pattern that no longer surprised his disciples. So, if you only pray 
when you really need something or you're facing a crisis like the young man in the opening story, well, then you can just know for certain you've put it off for too long. So you better get after it. Because chances are, if you had been in regular prayer beforehand, that you would have already realized what God would have had you do in that circumstance to have not ended up in that crisis in the first place. Now, sometimes we have to end up in crisis because this is in God's will. But nevertheless, our preparation for those times of crisis matter. If, we are, if we're prayed up, in a sense, before the crisis, we're, go- we're already going to be in a better frame of mind to handle the crisis when it comes and not frantically seeking for God's will. Why have you allowed this to happen to me or, or some sort of prayer like that? And so we see from Jesus' example, he was regular in his prayers and we ought to be as well. Now the third thing we notice is that Jesus liked to escape from the busy demands of life to an out-of-the-way place, an isolated place where he could be alone with God. Now, like we see in this view here, uh, places overlooking a beautiful scene, places in the wilderness. We see him in the Garden of Gethsemane, a favorite place for him to go and pray, a secluded garden. Now, taking time to escape from the bustle, the noise, and demands of life, as I've already said, it's absolutely essential for our connection with God. There's another idea that's often been put out there of having a prayer closet. There's a great uh, movie called War Room that has a whole theme built around this, this woman who has her prayer closet in her house where she goes to spiritual battle in prayer on behalf of all sorts of people and circumstances. And then she catalogs and, and writes down in journals how she's praying and then how God is answering. And she has decades worth of God's faithfulness on record. It's Really a great movie if you haven't seen it. But just that idea of having a place that's devoted for prayer time. Where you know you can go there, you can be alone. Now sometimes it can be a place outside. Perhaps, you know, on your back deck or in your garden. Or or out on a dock overlooking the lake. or, Or somewhere where you can just get away and be in a place where you know I'm coming here to meet with God. I'm coming here specifically to have alone time with him. Now, doing this sometimes, depending on the season of life you're in, can be much easier said than done. I know this. If you're in the stage of life where you have babies or toddlers to care for, then your escape might actually literally be a lock on the bathroom door. And and it might be that five minutes of a kid outside all the while, and that's your, your time of devotion with the Lord that day. But if you've been there, you know how vital that five minutes in the bathroom can be. You know, other, other seasons of life, if you're depending on your occupation, if you're a farmer and you're neck deep in seeding or harvesting, you know, late nights, early mornings, life can get frantic during different seasons. But one of the things I want to emphasize here is look at Jesus' example. Was his life frantic? Was it full? Was it a little chaotic? At this point, emphatically, yes. The crowds were coming from all directions. They were packing in on him. It was busy season. So did Jesus use that as an excuse? Did he say, well, it's busy season. I'm too busy to pray, God. No. If anything, it was more reason that he's like, I need to carve out deliberate time to pray because it's so busy. See, too often we have it backwards. We, we think of devotional time, connection time, being in fellowship in church as, as periphery things that if I get too busy, I don't need them. 
But it should be the opposite. The busier we get, the more we need them. Because the strain of life, the wear and tear, the spiritual battle, the busier, the more chaotic it gets, the more we need that connection with God. We have it backwards. We need to retrain our minds, have them be transformed to say, I'm getting busy. I need to spend more time in prayer, more time in the word, more time with the Lord, and get ruthless about carving it out. If Jesus could do it, you know, it said he got up very early in the morning. I'm not a morning person, but if Jesus could do it, I can do it too. He knew this wasn't optional, and he was going to make it a priority. We can do this. Guard this time closely. Now, the fourth thing we notice is that Jesus' prayers were persistent. He didn't just pray for a minute or two. Of course, nothing wrong with praying for a minute or two. We should be praying all the time. But here we see that he spent the night praying with God. Now, most folks have a problem when it comes to this idea of praying for a duration of time. And the reason is because they feel guilty that they haven't prayed enough or long enough. Have you ever felt guilty about that? I have. I'll put my hand up. Right? Uh, There's the old joke about, you know, the song, Sweet Hour of Prayer? And one pastor said it should probably more accurately be Sweet Minute of Prayer. Right? Because that's about the duration most of us pray. Sweet Hour of Prayer. But you see, if we think about it, the main problem here isn't the duration or the amount of time we spend in prayer. I think our main problem is how we view prayer. Because you see, it's easy for us to view prayer as an obligation or or a duty, something that I have to do. On top of that, prayer might seem at times to be boring It might seem pointless. It might feel like my prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling, that they're not really going anywhere. But what if we changed our view on prayer? What if we changed our view? What if we thought of prayer less as a religious duty or an obligation that I have to check off my daily list, and we thought of it more in the same way that we would think of having a conversation with a good friend? Now just think about this. You have a good friend come over to your house and they're sitting on the couch next to you. What are you going to do? You're going to visit with them, right? You're not going to sit there and twiddle your thumbs and look out the window and ignore each other. Not, Not a chance. You're going to want to engage in conversation with your good friend. You don't even need to have anything to talk about. You don't even need a topic. It's just this is your friend. You are going to speak with them. It's just natural. Now, what if we began to think of our communication with God more in that vein? That we're having a conversation, a running conversation, with a good friend. Well, there's a story told of an old man's daughter. And the daughter had asked their new pastor from their church to come by and pray with her ailing father because it was clear that the end was drawing close. And when the pastor arrived, he found the old man lying in bed with his head propped up on two pillows and an empty chair pulled up close beside his bed. While seeing the empty chair, the pastor assumed that the old fellow had been informed of his visit beforehand. I guess you were expecting me, he said. No, who are you? came the old man's reply. Oh, well, I'm the new pastor at your local church. Uh, When I saw the empty chair, I figured you knew I was coming. Oh yeah, the chair, said the bedridden man. Would you mind closing the door? Puzzled, the pastor shut the door and sat down. 
I've never told anyone this before, not even my daughter, said the man. But all of my life, I've struggled with prayer. I just don't know how to do it. I, I have tried everything, and it just, I finally felt like giving up altogether. But then one day, about four years ago, a good friend of mine, he said to me, Joe, prayer is just a simple matter of having a conversation with Jesus. Here's what I suggest. Sit down on a chair and place an empty chair in front of you. And in faith, see Jesus sitting there on that chair. It's not spooky because he promised, I'll be with you always. Well, then just speak to him and listen in the same way you're doing with me right now. Well, so I tried it and it worked. And I've liked it so much that now I talk to Jesus a couple of hours every day. I have to be careful, though, because if my daughter hears me talking to an empty chair, well, she'll either have a nervous breakdown or send me off to the funny farm. Well, the pastor was deeply moved by the old man's story. And so he encouraged him to continue on with his journey, with his running conversation with Jesus sitting in the empty chair. He prayed with him, and then he left. Two nights later, the daughter called him back to inform him that her father had just passed away that afternoon. I'm sorry to hear that, the pastor said. Did he die peacefully? Yes, he did, she replied. When I left the house around two o'clock, he called me over to his bedside, told me one of his corny jokes, kissed me on the cheek, and when I got back from the store an hour later, he was gone. But there was something very strange, Pastor, something I can't quite explain. In, in fact, it's kind of weird. Because you see, just before Dad died, he leaned over and he rested his head on that empty chair he always had beside his bed. And then the daughter paused and finally said, I, I, I don't quite know how to explain it, but even though that chair was empty, it seemed to me that he was putting his head on someone's lap. You see, my friends, to pray is as simple as a child putting his head on his father's lap, telling him about his day. For you see, Jesus didn't get up super early and skip out on those precious hours of sleep to go away to be bored for a few hours. No, not at all. He, he, he slipped away for those precious hours because they were sweet. They were necessary. He needed to talk to his dad. He needed to tell him about his day, and he needed to hear from his father about what lay ahead. And yes, what the mission was for the next day, that it was time to move on. See, Jesus didn't pray out of duty or obligation or out of guilt. He prayed because he desired to connect with his father. And so it's the same for us. The length of time or how fancy our words are, it doesn't matter and it doesn't impress God anyways. That's not the point. The point of prayer is that continuous connection with God. And this is why Paul also said to pray without ceasing. So let's model our lives after Jesus' example. For if he, the Son of God, needed to pray early and often, how much more don't we? And to quote Dr. Ed Neufeld once more, For Jesus, frequent lonely prayer was an essential part of his service to God and people. And for most of us, busy in service to God and people, this is not the case. For some great delusion operates in me that though Jesus needed this, 
I don't think I do. Well, my friends, let's fight that delusion. If Jesus needed this, we need it twice as much. Let's not think that we don't need something that Jesus needed. We need it. Let's fight the delusion to think that we can live the Christian life apart from our connection with our Father. Let us go to prayer early and often. Let us learn to, to, to understand what that means to pray without ceasing as we go through the day. And as we go through our work days, that we can have a running dialogue with the Father. And then to take separate time to make sure we're alone, to really meditate in his presence before making big decisions. And that we do this as a regular part of our lives. Spending time with God, persistently, early, often, and late. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us this wonderful avenue of prayer with which we can come boldly before your throne of grace with whatever our prayers and petitions and requests and thanksgiving and praise might be in that moment. Thank you that prayer doesn't need to be fancy words or long flowery phrases. It can just be honestly opening up our hearts before you, talking with you like we would talk with a friend sitting on a chair next to us, telling you about our day, about our thoughts, our dreams, our struggles, our questions, and of course our needs. For you are there listening to each and every word and each and every cry of our heart is not unheard by you. Instead, you hear even the faintest whisper when it's directed your way. Thank you that you are so faithful to listen to us and that you not only listen, but that you respond so graciously, so wonderfully, and that through this you transform our minds and align us to your perfect will so that we can both know it and live it for your glory. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In our hymn of response, we'll sing number 433, 433, Sweet Hour of Prayer. Who would stand with me? We'll sing verse 1. Ask Pastor Danny to come and pray with us again. 